Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. This is the third episode in a week. People are saying, leave us alone. <laughs> what have we done to what have we done to you? It's like EastEnders. But anyway, we're here because and we're always we're always last with the news. Mark Selby is the world champion again. Uh, and we're here to look back on last night's final. Uh, firstly, congratulations to him. Congratulations as well to Sean. You know, they put on a show and uh, what a show it was. You know, we had a packed crucible. It was it, it wasn't quite the fairy tale ending in as much as I was I was thinking if Sean had potted that last red, we're going seventeen each. But it turned into a great final, I think, in the end. It, it 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 looked like it might peter out. It looked like Mark could probably hold him off. But it got quite tasty towards the end. We had a great final 10 years ago between John Higgins and Judd Trump. And I was trying to think, after last night, we've now had 10 finals since then. And with one obvious exception, I can't think of any of them that were as good as this. So 2018, I mean, I still feel that was the greatest final ever. But within the last 10 years, I think this was probably the second best. In the way it finished, the absolute you know, massive tension at the end, which was only heightened further by the fact that as he was getting down to pop the final black, which you know was by no means a gimme that shot at all, even under normal circumstances, Selby's clearing away people out of his eye line, just, just added to the suspense of it all. I thought it was an absolutely magnificent finish. The way Selby's arm was shaking, I don't know if you noticed that, as he was playing that final red in what turned out to be the last frame, just showed how much pressure he was feeling at that stage. And I think he felt the same as you, that if he lost that frame, in all likelihood, it was going the distance. Yeah, and that's why I think Murphy, you know, the red, I, I thought was sort of a 40-60 shot. I, I, thought, yeah. I think he's more likely to miss it than get it. But I think he's right to take it on, actually. Um, he because, was right to take yeah. it on. Yeah, there's no question about that. But I think he had let a little bit of doubt creep into his mind mm-hmm. because clearly you could see, I mean, you know, it wasn't hard to spot at all. He was debating with himself whether or not to go for it. He was always going to play that shot in the end. An attacking player like him is never going to turn down a red like that in a situation like that. And nor should he. But I think once that doubt had got into his head, it made the shot just that little bit more difficult. And I think he knew, you know, once he missed it, I'm not going to quite say inevitability because of the circumstances. And let's face it, as we said, it was a, a, a tricky finish in the end for Selby to complete that little mini clearance. But he certainly seemed to trail back to his chair, having missed that red, feeling that maybe the moment had gone. Yeah, I think the only way Murphy was going to beat Selby was, was to go for his shots. He, he, he could see... I mean, Ronnie actually gave him the free advice on Eurosport. Not that, not that Sean would have seen it. I, I don't imagine, but he said, like after day one, you cannot get involved. I mean, the, the Sunday ended with a horrible frame um, mm. where, where where Selby just pulled away doing what he does. And 
Ronnie said, look, if he puts a, it's a bit like he was sort of almost paraphrasing um, the line in the, in the Untouchables. Um, he said, if he puts a ball on the cushion, you take a ball off the cushion. He's always one of those. Uh, <laughs> Got to keep the game flowing. And he said, don't be afraid to leave him a long ball because you're forcing him then to take it on. And he started to miss a few. Selby's long game was great all through the tournament. But the pressure came on, you know, it came on. And, and had Sean potted that red, he would have won that frame. 17-16, it's anyone's. But he didn't. Mark Selby made his clearance. Um, I have to say at the end, I, I thought it was very touching, the scenes, you know, to see that crowd um, in the Crucible. It's not just any tournament we've got a crowd back. We've got a crowd back at the World Championship. Uh, all the smiles, everyone just happy, you know, to be back. It represents a kind of light at the end of the tunnel, I think, for everybody. Um, brilliant, you know, and... and you know what? What an effort as well. You know the whole event, basically a month long, um, that people have been, people have been slogging it out. Obviously, you know the top players have come in for the seventeen days. That's long enough. But just everyone involved with it. You know, all those guys now have gone home today. Probably did what I did, which is go straight to bed. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know it was a triumph, wasn't it? The whole thing really. I mean, regardless of who won, everyone has their favourites. It passed off without a hitch. It was brilliant. No, which is amazing actually. I mean, you think the chances of a player testing positive, you know, were actually, you know, considerable. Let's put it that way. I mean, you know, it would not have been a big surprise if that had happened. You know, we didn't hear of any sort of difficulties with uh, the whole operation, with the fans and obviously the uh, the implications with the virus and all the rest of it. And it, it seemed to go so smoothly. I mean, it wasn't just the normal sort of thing of just turning up and showing your ticket and going in, you had to um, well, you had to show your negative test, didn't you? Um, and all kinds of other things as well. So it was very, very difficult from that point of view. But if you didn't know all that was part of the arrangement, you, you know, you wouldn't have realised it because it just seemed so smooth uh, the way it all happened in the end. Um, but just returning to the final briefly, in yeah. a way, I think Sean's going to be kicking himself, isn't he? Because we said the other day that he really needed to try and play his own game bring his scoring game to it. And it was going to be up to Selby to try to stop him doing that. Now, the thing is, Selby didn't really stop him from doing that. He, um, he, he had plenty of chances. I mean, you think particularly on the Sunday and the Sunday night, especially the number of times Murphy got in, but wasn't scoring heavily enough from his opportunities. Yeah. He had the chances and it'll be kicking himself more than anything else about the fact that he did start to play with a bit of freedom towards the end, knocked in a couple of tons late on. He must be thinking, if I'd only been able to bring a bit more of that, the way he finished the match, the way he finished the semi-final as well, then maybe it could have been a very, very different story for him. Yes, he'll be very pleased to have got to the final, but he knows a second world title was actually there for the taking. And I just have to finish off the remarkable coincidence of you referring to the untouchables there, because mm -hmm. I know for a fact that 30 years ago, this very year, the night of the world final on BBC Two, The Untouchables was being shown on BBC One. Well, there we are. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like, I feel like just ending things there, <laughs> not, not and not just the podcast, but um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, listen, I think any match you'll look back on with with sort of think, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that. He had a great tournament, Sean, and he spoke mm. super, superbly at the end. And that's one thing I think Snooker it should be proud of actually is that. It's players aren't just reading off a script. You know, there's certain sports, let's name them, golf and tennis, where that would have been a list of thanking this sponsor, that sponsor, yeah, my team and all this. And it's just dull. Snooker, and this is why one of the reasons people love the sport, you, you know, they're human beings and he spoke from the heart. They both did. I mean, Mark actually said, you know, how can I follow that sort of thing? Sean, mm -hmm. in the moments after defeat, I thought spoke brilliantly. And that also made 
the evening was quite special, I think, just the, the, mm. the, the way he, he, you could see genuinely was moved by the fans, the fact that they'd embraced him during the tournament. Um, I don't think, well, I'm not going to say no one tipped him to reach the final because I'm sure people did, but he wasn't really spoken of that much as a potential winner of the tournament. He's got his confidence back. It's, it's sort of short of his ranking. Um, yeah. he'll, be disapp- he'll be disappointed for sure. Like you say, it was a chance. Just seemed to slip away on that uh, on that Sunday evening. Um, so there we are. It's <laughs> it's over. Um, mm. What I mean, I I can't remember what what score you gave last year, but what what would you give the world championship out of ten? Oh yeah, you always hit me with this, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, let's get a few things out of the way. For me, right? I don't know if you agree with this, but I always say the world championship is always the best tournament of the season, mm. even in seasons when there have been other really good events. Even think of 1993. That's the one I always point to as you know, a really, I don't want to say poor world championship, because it's always a great event. It's always two of the best weeks of your year. And even then, it was still most enjoyable and most memorable event of the season. But there's no denying some world championships are more memorable than others. I mean, I always think of 2002 as possibly the greatest world championship there's ever been. And I think what clinched it was we had two great semifinals and a great final. Now, this championship, it had had its moments, but probably no more than its share, shall we say. But then we had a fantastic weekend, which we've had more and more in recent years, where we've had two really good semi-finals and final. Amazing comeback from Murphy in the semi, as we discussed on Sunday. The other one, different sort of match, but brilliant narrative to it. Great tension and then all the drama of having to come back for an extra session. And then what was throughout, I thought, a very, very interesting final. Just Selby getting that bit of a lead and Murphy constantly threatening to close in on him, but never quite managing to do it but then putting in the big finish to make a real final of it. I thought overall it ended up being, you know, an above average championship. Now, what mark out of 10 does that mean? Let's say seven and 11 sixteenths. Well, I'm going to round it up to eight. Um, yeah. Purely because we had the crowds back. It was a kind of, it was a, I'm not, well, this sounds like a pun now, shot in the arm, but um <laughs> But it was, and I think you're right. You know, we often remember the World Championship by the way it ends. That 93 Championship, that was 18-5. A great exhibition of brilliance from Stephen Hendry, but no drama. Um, this had the drama. The semis, I mean, I sort of described them, you know, as a sort of drama in their, in their own right last time. Uh, well, I say last time, about two days ago. Um, but, um, yeah, and then the final, you know, had, had, its, uh, had its kind of, had its big finish and BBC two, uh, they had over 4 million watching, you know, which Astonishing is ne- stuff. Yeah. Well, they never, I mean, you know, they, they never get that for anything. Um, yeah. that's, but people that's a- only want to watch Ronnie if don't they? I mean, I, I thought <laughs> that was the thing that, you know, once Ronnie gets knocked out, everyone loses interest and nobody wants to watch. Well, it's funny because a guy, a very angry uh, person on Twitter, which I know is unusual, uh, contacted is, me. Is just, there any other kind? Yeah. Contacted me just for the semi-finals. <laughs> he did make me laugh. He said, this is the worst lineup ever. He said, no one will watch the semis. No one will watch the final. He said, I'm not watching it. He said, I'm going to watch my Falcon Crest DVDs. Yeah, well, now, enjoy it. You know, <laughs> well, Falcon, Falcon Crest. I mean, that's, that is, that's kind of a little bit Well, little it's, bit a bit, it's, left a bit field. it's a bit yeah. 80s, you know, so we've got to give it some kudos on that. Well, well, I'm afraid what you missed was three extraordinary matches, actually. Uh, while you're well, no, but he, but he won't Crest. have. He won't have missed no. them, will he? Because he'll have watched probably every minute of it. I mean, I love the idea that you're not, you're not sufficiently interested in a semi-final and final of the World Championship but you're interested enough in snooker to go, yeah. go on Twitter and comment on us. I mean, well, I can, I can already see some idiot journalists though sharpening their pen, 
because this yeah. Gods of Snooker uh, documentary is coming up on Sunday, mm-hmm. and they'll be saying, and that, which the Radio Times seem to have gone big on. They didn't, they didn't go big on the World Championship, uh, and they'll be saying, well, it's a far cry from the 18.5 million who tuned in, blah blah blah. Television has changed. I'm telling you now, four mil- BBC One would be happy with four million. Then my mm. BBC Two, that's a huge figure, and it represents actually the great year Snooker's had. Eurosports figures have been through the roof this season. Um, several tournaments. I mean, I know people have been stuck at home. There is that. But several tournaments have had the biggest figures of that tournament. ITV4 have had massive figures. They hit the million again. The afternoon session of the Tour Championship was the biggest viewing, viewing figure for the after, an afternoon ever for them. So in the UK, the viewing figures are fantastic for all the broadcasters. And, and you're right, it doesn't. it's not actually about who's playing. Obviously, you know, certain players do uh, bring people in. But the game itself is the star. And it was the perfect... Hit the, hit the sweet spot of just after 10 o'clock. Between 10 and 11, that's when you want to be on air coming to coming towards a climax because you've gone past the primetime shows, uh, but people haven't gone to bed yet. It's that little that little hour. If you can still be going then, the problem in the past is going back 10 or so, 15 years, is that there'd just still be another two hours to go after that. And people do go to bed uh, because they used to start at 8 o'clock and it was never 8 o'clock. It was quarter past 8 and so on and so on. And the players were knackered. But that was, that was kind of, again, the sort of, Fairy tale finish in a way. We'd have loved it to have gone to Decider, but you know, you can't have everything. Um, that's the TV figures. But Mark Selby, of course, he does divide opinion. Now, we, we sort of discussed him quite in depth last time, but we've had some emails. Now, I'm not the BBC trying to balance everything, but I'm happy to say we've had four emails here and they, are, they balance each other out. Some are, some are pro, some are anti. Uh, so I'm just going to read them out one after another and then we'll just have a, a chat at the end. I have had to edit them down a little bit just for length and also there were some digressions. So we start with Mark Walsh. She says, on your chat with Mark Selby and gamesmanship in the latest show, I couldn't disagree more. You need to separate out three things. One, playing negatively, not taking risks, playing defensive safety, deliberately making the balls awkward, etc. This is nothing more than hard match play and it's up to the opponent to handle it. Two, playing deliberately slowly. In my view, this is akin to, to niggly fouls in football, a deliberate attempt to use low-level illegal methods to disrupt the opposition. Just because it's tricky to, to police, when does composing yourself slip over into slow play? doesn't mean that players themselves don't know exactly what's going on. <clears throat> Number three, celebrating before potting the winning ball. This is plainly disrespectful. OK, it's a trivial thing in the grand scheme, but players shouldn't be surprised when they get a negative reaction. At the end of the day, it's all opinion, but I felt that your very eloquent defensive mark as a person and negative player's legitimate tactic alighted over the actual causes of complaint from Stuart... Uh, Stuart Bingham, that is, and your other correspondents. By the way, uh, Mark, nice use of the word elided. I enjoyed mm. that. Some, mm. I, don't know, I don't know why, but anyway. So that's Mark. Callum Law said the negativity towards Mark Selby in some quarters is bizarre. People moaning about him slowing the game down and being a grinder, yet he's made nearly, made nearly 700 centuries. Personally, I think he's the cleverest player on tour because he makes sure every game is played on his terms and therefore gives himself the best chance of winning which is the aim of the game after all. You're entitled to play whatever style you choose, and I think people who knock Selby's approach should show him more respect and appreciate how good he is. We see other players, Neil Robertson again this year being a relevant example, getting drawn into a way of playing that doesn't suit them. You never see that happen to Selby, which I think is testament to what a great player he is. My feelings are similar when it comes to Mark Williams' break-off. You're entitled to play in any manner you like, and Williams plays that shot because he believes it gives him a better chance of winning. I think he should be applauded because he's taken an innovative step to try and avoid losing frames from his break-off. Spencer Andrew writes, says, I tend to watch on a computer screen. This year I realised I could pause the iPlayer for an hour or so, then use my mouse on the progress bar to jump forward in chunks. So I was able to watch all of the Selby matches by completely removing him from the match. I jumped forward in stages until the arrow moved his opponent's name, then resumed play until his opponent missed. Repeat. It was great. I watched some classy, fluent break building from Bingham, then some frankly incredible balls striking from Murphy. 
I was gasping, gasping out loud at regular intervals. He made it look like a little pool table down the pub. Once I was able to eliminate Mark from proceedings, all my usual anger and despair fell away. It's not that I dislike him as a person. He's probably a good chap. I just want to be entertained. And Mark not only cares nothing for that himself, he also takes calculated steps to prevent the other player from providing the entertainment on Mark's behalf. Just think about all the backroom staff, promoters, table fitters, caterers, pundits, players, media employees, etc., who depend on snooker, holding eyeballs in order to pay their mortgage and bills. Watchability is number one, and all else flows from that. I hear it's effective. He has a right. It's not all about looking pretty from some pundits and commentators, but I don't think in their heart of hearts they believe that. To me, that sounds like taking the moral high ground while secretly hoping there are enough watchable players to knock him out or otherwise watch him down. Or maybe they just don't want to be mean to a fellow human being, which I can understand. And finally, Jay Brannon writes, I've just finished your edition preview in the world final and the two of you defending Mark Selby was extremely thought-provoking. Your wider points about people being too judgmental and not seeing the bigger picture as to why they act a certain way was spot on. I'm a huge Ronnie O'Sullivan fan, but that's never stopped me admiring Selby's work ethic, incredible safety expertise, and his capacity to accept bad performances but not throw in the towel. His frame management when protecting a 40-50 point lead is unsurpassed. The backstory of Selby is deeply moving and in no way do I resent the success he's had even if I don't consider him one of the most enjoyable players to watch. For me, even when scoring, Selby just doesn't appeal to my own preference for elegant break builders such as those Sullivan, Lozowski, Ding and Williams. However, some people need to look beyond whether they enjoy his play and still acknowledge an incredible champion who's bounced back from incredible adversity to become not only a great champion, but a wonderful ambassador for this exceptional sport. So thank you to all those people who emailed in. And I think it's fair to say everything was covered there. Mm. Um, yeah, Alyssa, I think just, I mean, we kind of spoke about this before. You, you're absolutely entitled to, um, you know, choose what style of snooker you enjoy. But I think you have to pay absolute respect to the achievement, um, not only of winning these tournaments, but actually getting himself into this position in, in a, in a frontline front sport. Um, the, the, just the thing about that, all the people backstage, I can assure you, Mark is incredibly popular on the snooker. Absolutely, circuit, yeah. Because he's yeah. always he's always been himself. You know, he's always had time for everybody. Um, and the viewing figures, you know, suggest that actually, you know, the, all this stuff about he's going to kill the game is nonsense. He didn't kill the game the, the first three times he won it. I suspect he won't the fourth time either. People used to say the same thing about Steve Davis, and he played in all these massive finals with like 15 million people watching them on television. So. It's just a myth, I think, that he's not watchable. I, I just don't see this at all. I don't believe he plays deliberately slowly. I think he's fascinating to watch, and we saw it in so many frames in the final. The way he's just he's the most patient player I've ever seen. I've never seen anyone like him in that regard, that he, he will always restrain himself if he feels that he needs to do in terms of his shot selection. And then it's fascinating to watch him do that, to carve out the chance to wait and wait and wait for the moment to come and then pick off the frame. I think it's absolutely wonderful to watch. And you know, one of the reasons snooker is so popular is you, you get you see so much of the players and you see them so close up that you get to know a lot about their personalities, their styles, their backstories. It wouldn't be as popular if they all played the same way and had the same style and the same approach. So it's fantastic that players approach it in different ways. And as I said the other day, this is the way that Mark Selby has won four world titles. Do people honestly feel there's an argument for Mark playing in a different way that doesn't suit him and maybe having won the world championship only once or maybe not at all? Well, I think this feeds into a kind of slightly modern phenomenon. And we're nothing if not across popular culture on this podcast. You know, mm -hmm. we, we mentioned the Wilsons Classic the other week. So and Frankie we're, Goes to Hollywood. Yeah, we're, we're up for that. Yeah. Falcon Crest. Falcon all Crest, of that. yeah. So I spent a bit of the weekend defending Mark Selby and also the Line of Duty finale. OK, so if, if, this is a spoiler uh, if you haven't watched it. But mm. 
it, it feeds into this idea. A lot of people haven't outraged by the, the way that, that series ended. It's, but for those outside Britain, it's a very popular TV police drama series. But th- th- it's this idea that what I personally want is what should happen sort of thing. So if you want the big grandstand, uh, you know, swashbuckling finish and you don't get it, then the the sort of choices made by the creative team are automatically wrong. Not They're not just different choices to what you would have made or what you wanted. You didn't get what you wanted. Therefore, the people involved are all awful and should be sort of hounded out the country kind of thing. You know, if you're a snooker player, you can choose how to play the game. You don't have to just go and smash them up, you know, and make it an open game. You're there to win. Okay, you're there to win. And I can guarantee if we did this podcast 30 years ago, we'd have emails from people complaining about Steve Davis always winning and he's made the game boring and blah, blah, blah. And actually, Hendry, people got fed up with Hendry winning every year, even though he mm. played a, a very open game. Oh, you know, what? where's the craft? What, you know, all this. So, listen, you, you pay your money, it takes your choice. It turns out a lot of people paid their money. And mm. the, the people there last night were loving every minute of it. That's That's obvious from the way they got involved. And, you know, there was a big audience and I, I messaged Mark myself this morning when I when I had the coronavirus and I was fine, th- thankfully, but he messaged me several times during that period to see how I was. You know, he didn't, didn't have to do that, did he? He had his own business going on. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a great defender of, of, of Mark as a person. Yeah, I mean, and, and I was actually thinking about that. It's funny you should mention it during the speeches, just the sheer ordinariness, ordinariness of the two of them. And it's so typical of so many people in snooker. I mean, you... You think of like John Higgins, Mark Williams. I mean, you couldn't meet more normal, down-to-earth people. And these are the all-time greats you're talking about. And it just really came out in the way they conducted themselves. And as you say, in other sports, it would all be, I'd like to thank the team who've been updating my social and all this kind of talk. <laughs> you know, so, you know and, um, and again, that's one of the great things about snooker. And I really hope we don't lose that. I know there have been attempts in recent years to sort of modernize the game in various ways. And, you know, you look at the way the Masters was changed. Uh, you know, with the setup at Alexandra Palace and everything, which was great, you know, really good. That that worked very well. But you just don't want to see too much change of that culture in the game and just the uh, sheer down-to-earth nature of the players, which I guess comes from, look, you know, it's not like there's no such thing as a fancy snooker club in the way you might come from a fancy country club background in golf or tennis or whatever. You know, a snooker club is pretty much a snooker club. And if you get ideas about yourself, you'll be brought right back down to earth pretty quickly. And the game itself will do that to you, in fact. Um, so, yeah, just very, very ordinary people. And it, it, it's great that when, when you're at a tournament or whatever behind the scenes and players are there, you're just chatting to them like normal. You don't sort of feel as though you have to address them with any reverence. You, you don't have to go through any entourages, even if you want to do an interview with them. So it's one of the great things about snooker and long may that continue. Yeah. And also the unchanging nature of the Crucible. All that's really changed over the years is the kind of the colour of the set and the sponsors and so on. And I guess mm. to, to go together. That's what we like. We like the fact it's the same. Now, you know, you'll always get people sort of coming in from the outside, you know, with ideas on how to, to change it. If you wanted to change it, just take it to a massive like arena somewhere and make it a soulless affair. The Crucible, you know, is not a sporting venue, but it is the only place to have this tournament. This format is weird. We've, we've established it as centric, but it's the only format to have. And the continuity in it, in, in this... To quote Paul McCartney, another another uh, <laughs> contemporary reference, in yeah. this ever in this ever changing world in which we live in, the one constant every year is that world championship, and that that's why I think I felt quite sort of moved last night just to see it back to where it should be, you know, with a big crowd, um, fantastic. The whole thing, you know, listen, there's days when, especially when you commentate and you get up and you look who you commentate on, and you think, oh, it's day 
day 307, you know, do can I get through this again? But you do because it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it was another fantastic, you know, well, month actually with the qualifiers as well, just of, of snooker drama. Yeah, I, I was thinking earlier actually how long ago it seems that we were watching that first match between O'Sullivan and Joyce, but how much longer even still is it since we were talking about Henry and Weiss? Oh, yeah. Can, yeah. can, can we go off? We've spent the whole season with kind of, you know, cultural divergences. Can, can we mm. just have one more to finish it all off? Why not? Why not? Yeah, I want to address this live and let die thing because I think... <laughs> no, I, I, it's funny because I actually heard it on the radio. I think it was only yesterday or the day before. And I think Paul McCartney has been, has been unfairly treated in this whole thing. I don't think the line is in this ever-changing world in which we live in. I think it's in which we're living, which actually does make sense. Well, uh, obviously, I w- in normal circumstances, I would text him to find out. But uh, I know someone who was on a train. Uh, this is a divergence now. He was on a train mm. in Switzerland with Paul McCartney and his then wife. And there was just the three of them in the carriage. And it was a two-hour journey. And he spent the whole time working out a way of <laughs> trying, to, trying to say to Paul McCartney, Oh, it's just a great pleasure to meet. I'm a big fan. Without saying that sort of thing, you know what I mean. Mm. So he's trying to. For two hours, he tried to try to think. How can I be cool about this? Acknowledge the fact that we're here together, not just talking as strangers, but it's Paul McCartney. And by the way, you know, I went to see Wings in 1975. All that. Um, what was this, and, Alan Partridge? And, no, but that's like something you'd say. But of course, by the time he sort of was sort of figured out how to do it, of course, they, they Paul McCartney got off. Never, never did it. Um, what was what were we talking about? <laughs> Snooker, I think. <laughs> yes, live and let I think die. With, with, yeah. Oh yes, with, with, with oh, something yeah. like that, you know, there, there's a window, isn't there? You know, I mean, you've got about three or four minutes after that. It's just plain awkward. It's like you know when you don't get someone's first name after you've met them a few times, you can't actually ask them anymore. There's a window, but but Paul McCartney pulled the little shutter down on it. Anyway, um, let, let's go back to the World Championship for a for a moment. Um, how many world titles can Mark win now? I mean, you know, it's a mm. perennial question we seem to ask every year of, of the winner. Two years ago, you know, Judge Trump, you think he's not going to just be stuck on one. Last year, I think we agreed Ronnie could, could win more. Mark Selby, though, you know, he's won four of the last, what, eight world championships? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an amazing record. And if he continues on that on that sort of uh, vibe for the next few years, he's going to, well, Stephen Andrews actually saying on the TV, you know, potentially threaten his record. Yeah, and I mean, you know, okay, you, you look at these guys like, you know, Sullivan with um, his six, Henry with his seven, Higgins with his four. The amazing thing about that is all of those guys, pretty much from the moment they started out in their professional careers, were being talked about as future greats of the game. Steve Davis, it's a different sort of situation because he turned pro at a time when the game hadn't quite reached that level of profile that people would have been having conversations like that anyway. But all of those guys in that bracket that he's now in, they were being talked about in those terms from a very early age. Mark wasn't. You know, he turned pro very young. I think he was 16 when he made his pro debut. He had a decent amateur career behind him. But nobody said at the time, this is a guy who's going to go on and win loads and loads of world titles. It took him a while to do it anyway. I mean, he'd been a pro for about 15 years before he actually did become world champion. Uh, so all the more credit to him for achieving that. And look, you know, what? every world title you win once you get to that bracket moves you up a notch, doesn't it? So he's now ahead of Williams and alongside Higgins. Another one puts him ahead of Higgins. Then if he can get another one, he's alongside O'Sullivan and Davis. But as we know, with world titles, the magic number is seven. Now, are we having that conversation yet? You know, people talk about world titles as if you just reel them off at will. 
It's like when Ronnie won his fifth one in 2013. And I remember people saying, well, he's definitely the greatest now because he's certain to win two or three more. <laughs> you know, how you can base an argument like that on what you say is going to happen in the future. Uh, you know, it just makes no sense at all. But, you know, you look how hard it's been to win those four and the effort that's gone into it. I mean, you consider it's been maybe 13, 14 times he's gone there as a genuine contender. And it's taken him that many goes to get to four. So how many more goes would it take him to get up to seven? But if he wins another one in the next year or two, I mean, you know, he's he's 40, I think, in in two years from now. So if he could get up to five, then I think we do have to start at least having that conversation about him. And I mean, that would be the most astonishing achievement we've ever seen, really. The, The fact that if someone like O'Sullivan got to seven, which obviously he still could, that would be something that, as I say, people were talking about in, in terms like that from the start of his career. With Mark Selby, they definitely weren't until he was well into it. The thing is, we've said this before, but you know, you can make a sort of logical case how many world titles each of the players are going to win. So you say, OK, well, you could see Ronnie winning another one. You could see Trump maybe winning three or four more. You could see Karen winning one, Neil Robertson winning another one, Mark Selby another two. But hang on, there's only one a year. So some of those people clearly are going to be disappointed. Um I suppose the the thing now with Selby is he's got he's got nothing to prove as he. I mean, you get to four, that's that's incredible. Um, he is the man for that format, I think. You know, the four session matches. He's now he's now won I think ten out of thirteen four session matches at the Crucible. You know, that's seriously good going. Um, we... But isn't it amazing though that they're nearly always really close? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, and, yeah. And, and and I think that underlines what I was saying earlier that he sees the bigger picture. He's very patient in the way he approaches these matches, and he understands that the way he approaches it, he's going to lose a few frames here and there. Stephen Hendry was very good at that actually. He was very good at seeing the bigger picture and accepting the loss of frames as an occupational hazard. He went in with a strategy, very very different strategy to the one Mark has. But he always felt over the course of three or four sessions, it will come through for me and this strategy will work out. And ultimately, you get the same win and you're into the same round and you get the same trophy, whether you win by one frame or you win by, well, 15 or, well, 13 it was, wasn't it, that Stephen Hendry won by in 93. So it is interesting that so many of them are so close that he's willing to go out there and stay out there for as long as it takes and take that patient approach and just rely on his way of handling these matches coming through for him in the end. And as you say, with a remarkable regularity, it does. Well, this is the thing. And this actually, I think, will unite both his fans and his critics. He is someone you just don't want to play. If you draw a Ronnie O'Sullivan or a Judd Trump at the Crucible, you know it'll be difficult. Of course it will. But it'll be an exciting experience. You'll get caught up in a kind of drama. They might blast you off the table, but you're probably going to have an open game. Whereas if you draw Mark Selby, you know, that's a kind of you'd have to dig yourself in there for potentially three days, you know, of, of real tough snooker. And that is to his credit. Maybe and this talk about tying it all up, okay? Maybe Mark has sort of taken Paul McCartney's words on board <laughs> from that from that very song. When you've got a job to do, you've got to do it well. You've got to give the other fella hell. Well, he does. He gives them hell, and it works for him. And good luck to him. He's a four-time world champion. Now, we're going to wrap up shortly. We will be back next week to round up the season, uh, look back on the highlights and maybe the lowlights. Um, but Barry Hearn, uh, who, you know, he's not backward in coming forward. Someone asked him directly on Twitter, when does the new season start? Because nothing's been announced. And he said mid-July. That was his answer, mid-July. We have no more details than that. We don't know what that will be. Uh, but so it's not that long to wait, actually, a couple of months 
obviously the World Seniors Championship is on this week. That's going to be on the BBC Red Button. Uh, the Gosa Snooker documentary. So, the, you know, the game is around, but I think everybody after the Crucible does appreciate a break, don't they? They think, mm. OK, you know, we, we need to just... Because you can't follow it either. If there was a tournament starting tomorrow, it wouldn't be any good, would it? Because you can't follow what we've just seen. Well, we used to have this, didn't we, with the Premier League, which was a really good tournament in its own right. But I think it really came into its own when they stopped having the final of it, or the semi-finals and finals, straight off the, the back of, of the World Championship. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like sort of um, it's like a tennis event in, in Rhode Island, I think. They play a grass court event the week after Wimbledon. It's like forget about grass court tennis when Wimbledon's over. Just just move on and get on to the uh, to, to, to the other surfaces. So uh, well, maybe if Barry's talking about mid-July, I mean, would you put it past him that he's got as a late entry into the Tokyo Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, maybe he was so impressed with the world championship that started in July last year. He's going to have another one. I mean, if we can have three championship leagues in a year, why not a couple of world championships? But, uh, I, I mean, I saw Barry on TV last night talking, and it's just amazing to think that in one sense he won't be around anymore. In another sense, you know that in some capacity he, he will be. And I think now that he's taking on this role as president, you, you can imagine at the very least he'll come along and do things like present the world mm -hmm. championship trophy. So he, he's still going to be around the game, but it'll be interesting to see now. I mean, Steve Dawson, obviously, more than anyone, is going to be inclined to follow Barry's lead because he's been you know, so embroiled in that culture that, that Barry has. But uh, it, it's good in a way that Barry's watching over him. It, it's a little like when uh, David Moyes took over at Man United and Alex Ferguson was always there in the stands, just keeping an eye. Didn't work out so well for him. But I think <laughs> it'll work out very well now for, uh, for this new, new, new regime. And uh, it's come a bit abruptly, really, Barry bowing out. Because, you know, until a couple of years ago, he was doing the old Margaret Thatcher thing, wasn't he? I shall go on and on and on. Mm. But he's had the health issues over the last year or so, and um, that's obviously been quite thought-provoking for him. But there's no way at all we've seen the last of, of, of Barry in the game. And uh, we wish Steve Dawson all the best now as he takes it over on the day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and I get the impression Steve Dawson is not that interested in kind of, you know, pushing himself forward too much. He'll get on with the job. I'm sure he'll do a good job. Just, but Just like Barry then, no difference at all. Well, that's the thing, though, isn't it? That is the point. There's only one Barry, you know. There's yeah. Only yeah. And, and, you know, well, actually, Eddie is very much like him, to, to be honest. But but that that kind of style, you know, people have their own way of doing things. The calendar, I think, will be out possibly in the next week. Um, you know, it's still, it's still up in the air because you don't know exactly where we can travel to. But I guess in the UK, I mean, mid-July, just, just briefly, I mean, that's sort of between, I suppose, just the end of the Euro football and mm. before before the Olympics, there'll be like maybe a couple of weeks there where you can shoot on something in. We'll see. Listen, I think I could say we, we appreciate a break. We also, by the way, appreciate all your uh, thoughts during during the uh, the World Championship. And as I say, we're not going anywhere. We've got nothing else to do. So we'll be back next week. Um, I've got two young kids to look after. Oh, okay. I, I, th I think I'll be able to fill my day somehow. Ah, they're, yeah, they're, they, yeah. Can, they can run wild for an hour every week. Um yeah, so we'll be here next week to um, look back on the season. If you've got any thoughts about uh, your sort of highlights of the season, I guess it's sort of outside of the World Championship in a way because this mm. is on its own um, completely. But do let us know, uh, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, yeah, so don't and don't worry, it will be a week now. We're not going to be we're not going to be sort of hitting you uh, every few days as, as we have been, but hopefully uh, people have enjoyed. Listening to uh, the podcast to, to, as a sort of accompaniment to the World Championship. Congratulations again to Mark Selby. You know, it's every snooker player's dream to be world champion. He's done it now four times. And all the effort and the sort of mental resilience you need to win it once, never mind that many times. Very, very impressive. 
Uh, but that's it from us. So thanks for listening. And as we always say, and and, if, and newer listeners might not know why, but delve back into our previous editions to find out, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.